You are listening to the Magic Drop Podcast. I'm your host, Isabel Cornish, actor, author, and creator. Join me on this journey of growth, joy, and love. I'm here to bring you dope content to expand your mindset and uplift your energy. Why? Because it's your epic life. I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands we meet on today. I'd like to pay my respects to my elders past and present. Also, a quick shout out to ACAST for hosting this potty. Jacob Andre is a single full-time dad of four. He has a double degree in teaching and sports science, and his love of learning and addiction to personal development led him to complete a graduate diploma of psychology. With a background in athletics, Jacob pursued the skill of running, trying to learn everything he could. Jacob undertook several roles at the Northern Territory Institute of Sport and has worked as a strength and conditioning coach for the Adelaide Crows. Jacob is now an online strength and conditioning coach, a high school teacher at Darwin High and the host of the podcast, The Mind Your Body Show. Jacob, welcome to the Magic Drop podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Izzy, thank you very much for having me. So today I want to dive into running and, you know, all those myths, bust some myths and talk about how to start running for beginners. So I guess, first off, I'd love to know a little bit more about you and what inspired you to get into running and to also train people in running. Yeah, funny story. And it goes back to when I was about 13. I, well, first of all, I absolutely love talking about running. It's my favorite topic, particularly about running mechanics and, you know, proper running techniques. So, or good running technique, but I got into running when I was about 13. I'll tell you the story. So at 13, you know, you start to um, become a bit more self-conscious about how you look. And I was a bit of a chubby kid, although playing a lot of sport, love sport, played a lot of sport. And at 13, my first year of high school, at the time high school was grade 8 to grade 12 here in Darwin, Australia. And so end of first year, I decided I need to lose some weight and I wanted to like tone up and get like, you know, buff and um, to try and attract girls. That's It's embarrassing, but that's the only reason why I got into it. And so my house, we lived behind an, an oval and I would go out and I could only run half a lap and I was gassed. Um, so. We have the six-week Christmas school holidays here, and so every day for that six week over that Christmas, uh, six-week Christmas school holidays, I'd go out, and for the first week, I'd only, I think I ran maybe I did a whole lap, but I'd only do half a lap at a time. So I'd run half a lap, I'd be completely out of breath, so I'd do a whole bunch of push-ups and sit-ups. I think I did fifty. That would have been terrible technique. It was just like grunting all over the shop, and then I'd run the other half a lap, and then I did that for a week. The second week. Uh, I added in a lap. So I did two laps, only doing half a lap at a time with the push-ups and sit-ups in between all the way through to six laps. So I built up to six laps in um, in total, running half a lap at a time. And then from there, I suppose my love for running began. <laughs> and did you, during that period when you first started running and you first did the half a lap of the oval, did you like it or did you not like it did you hate running at that point when and you wanted to do it because you were driven by that motivation or did you actually enjoy it from the first time you started I didn't enjoy the the running in the moment I found it really difficult I was so out of breath and it was a struggle but I was so driven to lose weight and to tone up and become more defined and and even now like it's probably not probably should have been doing some sort of weight training some resistance training but um, it was just easy. It was, it was free. I was, it literally was out the back of my house. I just walked out my back gate and it was there. But it was not something that I enjoyed. I did enjoy the feeling afterwards, but and I certainly enjoyed the feeling, you know, at the end of the six weeks when I had changed physically. But, uh, yeah, no, in the moment doing the running, I really did not enjoy it. I was fully driven by the desire that the vision I had in my head of how I could look and, uh, and ultimately ended up looking. Yeah. And that's a lot of people, you know, report that they really don't like running when they first try it or when they start running, but there's also, there's always this period where all of a sudden you break through a wall and then 
you absolutely love it. Well, that's what I believe anyway. I believe it's all about, you know, that consistency and showing up and focusing on your motivation and also taking note of the positive benefits. And I believe there'll become a time when it is enjoyable. Do you also believe that? Oh, for sure. Yeah. And there was, it didn't actually take too long to tell you the truth before it did start to become enjoyable. And so at 13, I then was able to do a lot more, um, you know, playing sport at school, playing sport outside of school. My main sport was Aussie rules football. We'll probably get into it. But then from there, it got into um, beach sprinting and track sprinting. And even though there was times where that was extremely difficult, um, those trainings were hard and there's times when you don't like it. But it very quickly became a love of mine to run. I I really, once I could do those laps, um, and even though it was only half a lap at a time, I, I just, I loved, I loved the process. Is that also what inspired you to, you know, start your run coaching business and start training other people? Yeah. So what, well, what actually inspired me was the injuries that I had. So I probably was lacking some fundamental strength. And so, which even though I was sporty, I probably wasn't fundamentally strong. So if you break all human movement down, you come up with seven fundamental movements, which are your brace, which is foundational. And then from there, and let's just say there's a house analogy. So I say the brace is like a slab of concrete. Then from there, you've got your squat, lunge, hinge. So your hinge is kind of like a deadlift move. Then your push and pull, which can both be horizontal and vertical and rotation. So the seven movements. And so from that, those other six are like your walls and your roof. So your brace is your slab of concrete. The other six are your walls and your roof. Every other exercise beyond that is just like accessory stuff. They're like your light switches and your tap fixtures and all that kind of thing. So I was probably lacking a little bit of that stuff, but then through just doing it and then getting into more sport and then realizing I could actually run all right and that um, I was relatively quick that I then, when I then started to do a lot of training and put sessions together over time, I'd break down, I'd end up with injuries. And so I ended up tearing um, I left hamstring once pretty badly, a stage two tear, and then my right hamstring um, three times with a stage one tear, as well as my left hip flexor. So those injuries kind of led me to go, there's got to be more. When we did athletics, we didn't do a lot back then on technique. It was sort of like, you know, lean forward, do this with your arms. It was pretty basic technique stuff. So, but it was all about this essentially like this metabolic conditioning. It was just like flog a dead horse. Um, and so like, man, we could work hard. Um, but it was all about that conditioning. Uh, and there was not a lot on technique. So when I started to look into it in order to try and fix my injuries that I kept having and then to improve my performance, I, it just blew my mind. And I just, I was like, man, I wish I knew this previously. And I just loved it. Yes, it was all that momentum. Running sparked that momentum and then you got into further training. And that's what I've had many injuries as well and that's why I need to really prioritise my strength training and also my rehab as well and my mobility and my stretching because as soon as I don't stretch and I just – I used to have the mentality I could just go out there and go as hard as I possibly could and that nothing would happen. And then the older I've gotten, I've realised that that's not possible, that's not – possible for longevity and I'll just injure myself so I mean my running journey also started similar to you I started going to the beach and running one lap of the beach and I was wrecked I was totally wrecked when I got to the other end and then I'd run one lap and then back and then I did that for a few weeks and then I started to run to the beach along the beach and back home and then so that was about within five or six weeks I was running about five to six k's and as well, I loved it because it was free. I could do it anywhere, anytime. And then when I was shooting puberty blues, sometimes I'd work till late at like eight or nine o'clock and I'd get home and I'd have all this energy and I could just go and run and connect with nature and calm myself down from a work day, but not have to go to a gym. And back then gyms weren't open 24 hours like they are now. Yeah. So how, how old were you back then when you first started running? I started running when I was 15 and it kind of started like I also wanted to improve my health. So first I started to walk to school and I lived five kilometers from school. So I'd walk five Ks to school, go to school all day and then walk five Ks home. And then it turned into skateboarding to school. So I'd skateboard five Ks and then skateboard home. And then it turned into running around the beach and 
playing sport and stuff. So I've been running for a long time and that's, you know, periods where I'm running a lot, periods where I'm not running as much, but it's been a practice that's supported me throughout my whole life. And I don't think my life would have been as enriched and I don't think I've, I would have almost as many great creative ideas as I've had thanks to running. So I've, when I'm running, I get like so many creative ideas and I wrote half my book when I was running and walking. And so I really appreciate the creativity, the brain boosting benefits, and also, you know, the lifestyle benefits, how it improves your health. But you know, I get so many messages about people and they're like, I want to start running, but I start to run and I hate it. And like, I feel like crap. And I always say that you've got to, you know, break through that wall. So I'd love to talk a little bit more about some of those running myths and also some obstacles that may be holding people back from building a running practice. So what are the biggest running myths? Like, my question would be, is it bad for your knees and body? And that's kind of a little bit of a story going around. Yeah. So uh, first of all, anything which is body weight uh, where you're on land is going to be good for you. There's going to be some sort, so, some form of stress on the body. So muscular, skeletal. So your bones actually get strengthened by doing running. It, it would be remiss. It would be silly of me to say that, no, um, running running is good for your knees because if someone's got issues there with their knees, then it could be bad for their knees. So for some people, it might be bad for the knees. For many people, it's actually really good for the knees. So long as everything is right. So for example, some of the ways that you might end up having knee issues is if someone has a really tight ITB. Um, so the, the band on the side of the thigh, um, which gets really tight and then and then it kind of pulls on the kneecap. So you could have something like that. You could also have someone wearing old shoes or with sho- shoes that aren't great for their feet. And let's not even get into the barefoot running debate, which is great. Um, that is really good for you. But let's talk about needing to start by going back to running half a lap or in your case on the beach, running that smaller um, bit. You need to go right back if you're going to start with the barefoot stuff. So um, running with shoes on does get a bit of a bad rap, but it is good because um, so while running barefoot is good for technique um, and also strengthening up everything in the body from the feet up, having shoes on allows you to be able to just sort of focus on the running without worrying about stepping on glass, for example, if you're out on a pavement or um, it also gives you that little bit of support to help you out when you're beginning. Um, but if you do have old and tired shoes that aren't great for your feet anymore you can cause your feet to kind of roll so if you've got flat arches for example your bad shoes or even just flat arches your arch kind of drops down which then twists your ankle inwards which then turns your whole shin inwards which then um, twists your knee and so then you can end up with knee issues through like that but then from there you can also then twist your thigh bone which then rotates the thigh bone in your hip joint which then tilts your pelvis forward which then can then lead to issues in your back so you can end up with every sort of injury from your mid lower back down through hips, knees, ankles, and so on, shins through, through your feet. So it all essentially starts from the feet. When I talk about running, I do talk a lot about the pelvic bucket and hopefully we'll get to talk about that. And that's usually where I start off talking about technique, but all running starts from the feet up. And so running, if you get everything, if you do everything right and you, you do build up and progress intelligently and you do have good shoes on to begin with that are fitted correctly for your feet, then there's no reason why running should be bad for your knees. It actually should be beneficial for your knees. And then also some people say that you need to be, you know, slim or have long legs to run where, you know, if you don't have any injuries, you can run at any shape or size. Do you agree? Oh, definitely. Again, it goes back to, I'm probably just going to keep reiterating this, but it goes back to starting with where you're at and essentially even earning the right. Um, so if you've been sitting on the couch for the last 20 years, you don't really have the right to go and run a 10K you know, um, run or to do a half marathon. People that do that, they do, they train for that. So go back to where you're at and, and earn the right. So go back to that really um, low like short run and it might even just be a walk, get out and start with a walk and then increase. One of the best ways I like to increase is to say, 
do five, like a five-minute cycle where you might run for 30 seconds and then walk for a four and a half minutes or whatever it might be and then slowly build up like that in a four-minute in a five-minute cycle. The other one might simply be where you just go to where you're at. It might even be lower than that. So it might be from light pole to light pole. So that's how, like if someone wanted to start running, it's about assessing where you're at, where your fitness is at, and then, um, you know, trying an exercise, whether it's walking or running or running a longer distance, if that's where your base level is at at that point in time, and then slowly building. And how much can someone build in a week? Is there a recommended amount? Generally, around 10% is a good way to look at it. But but here's the thing. So the number one secret, which I'll, I'll give you the, the secret to being able to run more aerobically uh, is swim training. Like it is the best. There is a whole bunch of stuff. And I'm going off track for a second, but I'd, I feel like I need to say this at this point. There, It's so valuable to swim because there's a whole bunch of stuff going on in the body when you start swimming. There was a really cool article in Modern Athlete and Coach, which is um, an athletics journal that's released on a regular basis. And it was a long time ago now, and I haven't been able to find it since. But they were talking in that about what's actually going on physiologically in the body when you swim. So when you're in water, when you're in the air, there's there's air pressure on you. It, there is a little bit of pressure. It's very minimal, but there is still some there. And because we live with it, we're used to it. But then when you jump into water, there's the water pressure. So there's push, the water is pushing against your body and your body has to push back against it. So if you're vertical in the water, there's more pressure down at your feet than what there is on your upper body. But if you're doing freestyle swimming, for example, that is pretty evenly um, dissipated across the whole body, that pressure. Regardless, what happens when you're swimming is that, so when you breathe in oxygen, you breathe in a whole bunch of stuff. Oxygen is just one of the main ones when you're breathing in that your body uses, goes into your lungs, and then it goes down to the um, tiny little um, sacs at the end of the lungs, which then are surrounded by capillaries, the blood capillaries, and the oxygen actually diffuses through the capillary wall from the lung side into the bloodstream, and it transfers that ox- sends that oxygen around the body, and then it convert you get picks up the carbon dioxide, takes it back, and that carbon dioxide diffuses back through those capillary walls from the bloodstream into the lungs, and it's breathed out. So when there's when you're in the water, there's water pressure. The water's pushing against your body, and so the capillaries are actually um, squashed. That space in and around the lungs is actually there's less space there, and so your your capillaries need to become more efficient in processing that transfer of oxygen from one side and carbon dioxide through the other way. And so through that process, that's just one of the sort of things that's going on. Um, through that process, you become more efficient aerobically. So you, mm-hmm. your, your heart and lungs have to work harder, your heart especially, in order to pump that um, blood around your body, the you know carbon dioxide and oxygen as well as nutrients. And so you become more aerobically efficient. I first sort of came across that I was running consistently um, mid-11s on the beat test, and I was doing that from when I was about 15, 16 through to when I was in my mid-20s. And then around that, or early 20s actually, around that time I was at uni and we had to do a beat test, and I went, I had started doing sim training. Um, There's a little bit of hypoxia stuff that I was doing where you kind of um, holding onto your breath a little bit while you're swimming and extending out before you t- before you breathe. But regardless of that, when I was swimming, I was doing two sessions a week of swimming and I took my beep test up to 14.2. So I went up about two and a half to three levels on the beep test and the only thing I changed was swim training. Mm-hmm. So it, it, I will get anyone who I train and will listen and is willing to jump in the pool to jump in the pool for any type of um, for any for any type of swim training. There was also a story of a lady who um, in my hometown here who was a really good uh, marath- uh, marathon and half marathon runner and she was the second best in the, in the Northern Territory. She got injured and I was talking to her coach um, and she did all of her training for about six weeks, I think, leading up to this half marathon um, championship and she ended up running a PB and her entire training program for that six weeks into it, she did no running for six weeks. Really? was all in the pool. She took all of her running sessions and did them all in the pool. So it was a combination of some swimming. She was also doing deep water running. Um, personally, I love the swimming because you've got your face in the water. So when you're running, you can breathe anytime. You just 
you know, suck the air in right now. You breathe out whenever you can, it can be quite shallow. You can, it doesn't really matter. But when you're doing freestyle and you've got your head in the water, then your head's in the water. You can't breathe. So you're either holding onto your breath or you're blowing it out. Then you turn, you suck it in, you get some in, and then you have to then sort of breathe it out. So it teaches you also how to control your breathing, which then transfers over to running in, because one of the myth, one of the things that people say is, I don't know how to breathe when I run. And hopefully we can talk about nose and mouth breathing too, but um, that's one of the best ways I think to teach someone how to breathe when they run is to jump in the pool and start doing some swim training. So in addition to learning how to breathe when you're running, you're also getting all these cardiovascular benefits where you can improve um, to make running easier. And so um, that is through the swimming, but you can also do it in the deep water running. And that's what she was doing a lot of. She was actually doing a lot of, um, so for say, for example, she was doing two-minute efforts. She would just do two minutes of deep water running. And so personally, I like it with a weight, uh, with a, um, a flotation belt because it means that you don't need to like fight to keep yourself up, If it's, particularly if you're not a floaty person. Um, and you can just focus on just running. Uh, and so that was, th- there's benefit to that. But because your body's in the water, you've got that extra pressure on you. So there's extra demand on your cardiovascular system to work a little bit harder. And yeah, so she, she ran a, P- a PB. That's epic. And there's no impact as well. So you could be running and also swimming to improve your cardiovascular system, but also not putting more impact if you're doing a slow, gradual build. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there's no pressure on your joints, um, particularly if you do have sore knees or ankles or back or hip, whatever it might be. Um, You're getting a little bit of extra strength training out of it because you have to work against that resistance. Yeah. It's just a, it's a win-win. It should be in every runner's program. It should be, and anyone that has any form of running in their sport, including ball sports, they should, in my opinion, they should be including some swim training. Yeah, cool. And what about cycling? Is is running your number one and cycling maybe your number two? Is there benefits for cycling when it comes to running? Yes, um, I do. Yes, there are benefits to cycling. And it's often um, one of the exercises that a lot of physios will uh, prescribe for people returning from a knee injury. So I typically end up working with a lot of rehab athletes and uh, there's been a few, you know, like ACL um, tears that they're recovering from or whatever it might be, Um, different types of knee injuries. The ACL is the most common. And um, often physios will prescribe um, cycling. I always wonder though, I'm not sure because there's lots of little mini, if you think about it, if you go for a 10K ride, you might be cycling and taking a, you know, kicking down, pushing down on the pedals once every, I don't know, five metres, say, because you're going to have that momentum. I, I don't know, just say it's about five metres. And then you're doing 10K of that. That's a lot of little mini single leg squats, essentially, like push mm-hmm. down, push down, push down, push down, that you're probably going to end up doing, I don't know, the mass um, on that real quick, maybe 2,000, I don't know, um, of, which you wouldn't do in the gym. Like you just wouldn't do single leg, like that tiny little contraction of um of that so i'm always a little bit scared of prescribing um cycling for any knee rehab but the physios do it and it seems to be fine and i'm not a physio i'm a strength and conditioning coach so i'll take the physio's word on that and um and do what they say but uh i do think let's get away from knees for a second because your question wasn't specifically around knees but i do think yes for improving your running that cycling is very good. You do need to keep things um, specific to what you are training for. So you can't completely get rid of running altogether, or I suppose in the case of the lady that ran the PB, you could, but um, you do still need to run. You just simply have to run, but, um, and ideally you need to run, but I think cycling, whether it's at a certain point in a program, um, if we're looking more sort of a little bit more elite, sub elite um, in an off season or pre season, um, you could do a bit more of it, maybe even incorporate a little bit of it in season. Um, but for someone who just simply is a recreational runner who wants to, to run more and, and enjoy it more, then, yeah, it's, certainly cycling would be awesome. Um, and one of the things that cycling does is it really strengthens up your thighs. And so I personally don't like too much of it because my thighs just explode and get too big and then they don't fit into my jeans as nicely. <laughs> yeah, I have very overactive quads, so I have to be careful if I cycle way too much and don't stretch and roll my quads just get so tight um yeah so when it comes to breathing you spoke briefly about the nose and mouth breathing can you dive into breathing techniques for running a little bit further 
Yeah, so I wrote a blog about nose breathing um, previously, and I got so into it. It was so interesting. Um, I don't have the stuff in front of me right now to go back to it. There's a couple of things I'm going to forget, but um, essentially, the one of the best ways to breathe is in th- in and out through your nose. Breathe through your nose as much as possible. But uh, people say to me, "Oh, I can't breathe through my nose while I'm running," and I I say that's completely fine because when you're running most people can't get enough air in through their nose and certainly not back out again while they're running because your oxygen consumption need goes up you need more oxygen into your body because you um, organs are working at a higher level so that's when it's okay to go back to to mouth breathing and i think i wouldn't worry too much about breathing if you are just getting started um, I would just try to run for as long as you can, take a break. And honestly, that could be 10 meters, whatever it is. It's just a couple steps. Um, wherever you're at, just go to that point, but keep it enjoyable. Don't go to a point where you're flogging yourself, where you end up having all these negative um, associations with running. So if you do that and you build up intelligently in the distance that you're running, I think from there you can then start to look at some breathing once you've got got that sort of happening. And so when you're breathing, don't bother trying to breathe in and out of your nose or in through your nose, out through your mouth like you may have heard. Um, you could if you wanted to, but there's no need to. Like most people will need to breathe in through their mouth, out through their mouth. However, when you are in everyday life, it is very beneficial to shut your mouth, which I really need to take my own advice on sometimes because I talk too much. Um, but it also helps with listening too by shutting your mouth and then just focusing on breathing through your nose. I've, I've read um, articles from people who say to tape your mouth shut while you sleep. I, I'd be way too scared to do that. Um, but I, as much as you can breathe through your nose, the better. Because what happens is you get, as you breathe in, there's these little tiny sacs up in the back of the up back top of the nose, which um, they create those little um, circle, like it kind of creates like a cycle of air. And then that um, has all these different benefits. There's so many benefits to nose breathing that it's so, so effective. Um, But when it comes to starting to progress it in a run, what I always recommend is to breathe in for X number of steps, out for X number of steps. So I got told this by an athletics coach back when I was doing sort of short to middle distance running in my late teens. We would typically go for 20 minute runs. And so he would say, breathe in for say, four steps and then breathe out for say eight steps. Often what happens is, so you go one, two, three, four, breathing in and then breathe out one, two, three, four. You want to try and get to at least one for one. So if you breathe in for four, try to breathe out for at least four, if not for double. So continue to breathe out five, six, seven, eight. And then often what happens at that point is you're out of breath and you're like, I can't do that again. I can't breathe in for another four seconds. I need air. So what I say is to then do it once and then allow your body to settle and go, okay, breathe in and out as normal and whatever I need, and then go again, breathe in, one, two, three, four steps, and then same thing for the steps, um, one step, two step, three, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and so on. So you're using your steps as a sort of measure. And then what I, I went and I found that it really worked. And over time, you will be able to run for further, more easier. And so then – um, not only are you getting more aerobically fit, but you're actually finding your runs easier. And so you're learning to control how you're breathing. So it's very similar to swimming. So you take you, you take three strokes, for example, and then you take a breath. You put your head back in, take another three strokes, lift your head up, you take another breath. So essentially you're doing a very similar thing. Um, it's just harder when you're running because you can do it whenever you want, but when you're swimming, your face is in the water, you can't. So I spoke to a doctor about it and said, what's actually going on? Why is this improving my runs? Why am I feeling like I can run easier and I can run for further without getting out of breath? And she said, what's actually happening is in that eight seconds of you um, or in that time, you're actually holding the oxygen in for longer. So instead of going like in, out, in, out, in, out, you're not actually using all of that oxygen. You're, You're breathing in. And you might only, don't quote me on these percentages, but you might only be using 25% of the air that you're breathing in before it's already being breathed out again. So it's only even making it into your lungs. A whole portion of that is not even making it into your bloodstream. And um, and then that, that, which is, it's then processing and you're breathing stuff out too quick. So by breathing like that, whether it's 
two on, four F off or four on, eight off, whatever it might be, you're actually holding the oxygen in your body for longer, which is allowing it to get to the working muscles that need it, which then means that they're being fueled more efficiently. Yeah, and I have my personal experience with that. When I was getting back into running, I think I was I was either training for SAS or it was maybe after that period of time, I was always someone that did the two strokes breath, two strokes breath. And then I was like, I can't do the two strokes breath because I'm getting a sore neck if I'm always looking to the right. So I was like, I've got to change that. So then I started to do the I, first off, I challenged myself to do four strokes breath and then change to the other side, then look the other side, four strokes breath, look the other side. And that was so hard. I felt like I was going to drown. And then I did, and then I just gradually worked on it. And now I can do the, now my normal technique is the three strokes and the breath easily. But when I first tried it, it was so hard and I can easily do it now. And then also I had a period where I wasn't running at all was about when I was training for SAS, I wasn't running at all. I was doing walks, but not running, but I was swimming and I did a beep test. I was sick as a dog. I had had the worst flu and it was like a week before I had to go onto the show. We had to get a fitness test. So we did all of the different tests, um, like swimming with all your clothes on, single hand holds, chin-ups, push-ups, and then at the end they made me do a beep test and I got like 11.7 on the beep test and I was so sick and I hadn't run in two months. But I was like, that's obviously, now you've said that, it's probably because I was swimming so much that I was able to, you know, really maintain that quite good fitness when I was sick. Yeah. Well, so I, I feel very thankful that when I learned how to swim as a kid, that I was taught bilateral breathing, so being able to turn your head and breathe on both sides. And I, I really feel for people that, first of all, can't swim. Um, I think it's just such a valuable skill. At any age, I think you should be trying to teach yourself how to swim if you can't. Um, and then secondly, try to practice bilateral breathing and turning to both sides. I've always been someone that's always really wanted to try and get the most out of my body and being I don't want to be limited by anything. So I've always tried to be able to, if I can do something on one side, I want to try and do it on the other. I'm right-handed, so of course everything goes towards the right. If I'm starting in blocks, for example, I start with the same foot. But when I did beach flags with surf lifesaving, I always believed that if I could turn both ways, I would be such a bigger threat. And so I always practice just as much going one way. I'd always get up and turn to my um, to my left, but I'd always turn and practice to my right because if I ever got on the end, if I drew that, you know, that little paddle pop stick to go on the opposite end, that I could turn inwards the other way if I needed to and it, my competitors might not be expecting that. So I've tried to always be able to do things on both sides. And so with swimming, I think it's highly beneficial to be able to turn to both sides because then you're not going to get, you know, one side, you know, essentially injuries on one side or one side a little bit out of whack because it's a bit stronger or, you you know, your neck hurts because you're turning to one side. So um, practicing that and I would suggest starting with flippers on to do so and then maybe progressing to like a little floaty between the thighs or even like um, the hand paddles um, is I think really, really worth it. Yeah, I agree. And I did a swim squad, squad when I was a kid, but they never told me, but taught me bilateral breathing or swimming. I was always just doing the two strokes and that's what they taught me in this quite professional swim squad. And it wasn't until I was swimming next to one of my friends. I'm like, hey, what are you doing over there? <laughs> I'm like, I've, I've been going to the right. You're going both sides. But it, ma- it made a big difference. And now I do that with everything. Like I learned to skate on my, like uh, I stand natural, but now I skate on the left side. And when I box, my boxing coach does not like this at all. I'm like, hang on, I've got to swap sides. He's like, you can't do this. Yeah. And I'm like, no, I need to practice my other side, my coordination on my other side. I need to even myself out. So I really like it. And then once you start to, you know, work on those different sides of the body and because, you know, right hand and you're writing with your right hand all the time, we don't often pick up a pen and write with our left hand. But if we can find exercises or practices where we can challenge both of those sides of our bodies, then it makes it easier to pick up a new habit and also move to the other side. So I find it really beneficial. I I just found um, that, Blog article. I'll just quickly read through it. So the surprising benefits of nose breathing. So here's the key points. Nose breathing allows you to draw in up to 20% more oxygen than breathing through your mouth. 
nose breathing boosts brain function. Um, so there was a study with rats that showed that rats breathing through their mouth was slower to complete a maze than those who breathe through their nose. Um, and then when they reached adulthood, fewer of the, um, they had fewer neurons in the hippocampus, which is the part of the brain responsible for learning and memory. Nose breathing calms, calms you by lowering brain, brain waves. So the nasal cavity has a direct line to the emotional and memory processing parts of the brain. Um, and in addition to carrying messages about scent, these neurons sense air moving in and out of the nasal cavity and lock brain waves to the same rhythm. Humming while your nose breathe further enhances these benefits. So as I was saying about those little swirls of oxygen, humming creates swirls of air in the sinuses, which boost your production of nitric ox- oxide by 15-fold. Um, there's a whole bunch of more stuff there. And then mouth breathing leads to poor health. Um, so that was more about like the, the tooth and stuff like that. So um, it can lead to poor sleep, learning difficulties, tooth decay, and even um, jaw malformation. Um, but there's just so many, like for me, that alone is, um, is worth it to just focus on aiming for a bit more nose breathing in life. So when it comes to running, what do you recommend for a warm-up and a cool-down? Let's talk about beginners. Let's focus on beginners for this. Yeah, so with someone who's just a recreational runner beginning to start their running process, um, I always do like to have a little bit of a stretch of the calves, um, particularly after the – I'm 39 now, so I'm starting to get to this age where the, the, the calf injury is like an old man injury. Um, and luckily I haven't felt it yet myself because I do – um, calf strengthening exercises but uh, probably around the age of 35 actually is probably when it starts to become more common but it's around just your level of competence and what you already do so I do like to have a little bit of a stretch of the calves so um, personally I just hang my heel over a step um, so I put my foot on a step so my heel is hanging over so I get that good stretch um, and I keep the foot straight with my knee straight so the whole leg is straight and I might hold that not for too long, for maybe like 10 seconds, and then I do it again um, with my knee bent. So the straight leg does more the gastrocnemius, which is the outer muscle of the calf, and then the bent knee does more the soleus, which is the deeper muscle of the calf, as well as the Achilles tendon, which attaches the calves to the uh, heel. So people might say, you might have heard people say, oh, don't do any static stretching. It's not to say that static stretching is bad. But when that's all you do and then you then go and perform, try to perform, it can be bad because you haven't warmed up in the way you're going to use your body. So I I think you mentioned earlier that you don't really like um, doing warming up. I can't remember what you said, um, but I, I don't particularly like warming up too much if I don't have to. I only do the minimum that I need to do. So if I was just going for a jog, and I was just going for, like, say, a 5K run. I have a loop from home that I really like that's 5Ks. It takes me perfectly back to my front gate. Um, I don't really do too much. If my calves are feeling a bit tight, yeah, I'll do those two stretches for maybe 10 seconds each. Um, and then I just start to walk. And then once I get to, like, the alleyway um, towards the main road, I then just start to, to jog. And I just jog really slow. And then I just build up in pace until I'm at a comfortable pace, which is usually only takes me, from starting to walk um, until I'm running at my comfortable pace, maybe depends on the day and how what I've been doing, but maybe somewhere between maybe around 500 metres, not too far. Um, so on a long run like that for a beginner, I don't really personally do too much. Um, if it was more someone that was competitive, like they're an athlete and stuff, then, yeah, you'd have to go through and do a bit more. You do some more static stretching. You do some rolling with a roller. You'd definitely be doing your running drills and all that but for a recreational runner I personally don't do too much I just think just get out and just and just do it um but to go back around to what you would what we're just saying as to why I would get straight into as quickly as possible is that you have behavior can be classified into either a routine or a habit so a routine is actually a behavior which is frequent a habit is a behavior which is automatic. So people will say, I want to make exercise a habit. They don't necessarily want to make exercise a habit. They want to make it a routine. They want it to become initially something that they do regularly. And then from that, it then becomes automatic and it becomes automatic. It's not like they just everyone that's, you know, a fitness freak gets home and then automatically jumps into exercise. 
It's that there's some stuff happening inside the body, particularly at a cellular level. So when you first start to do something, your body changes. Actually, just let me mention the four E's. So the four E's of routine first. So you've got effectiveness. So your routines need to be related to your big outcome goal. Um, then from there, you need to, um, the second one is ease. And so with that, it needs to be easier to slip into. So you need to anchor it onto another behavior. So if you're going to go for a run when you get home from work, the best thing to do is to do it straight away. Um, so whatever you, so you come home, you put your bag away and then you go and you do it straight away. You don't sit on the couch first. You've got to make it easier to slip into by backing it onto an, an anchor behavior. So something that you already do, which is already essentially um, a habit. The next one is efficiency. So it's got to be efficient. So you've got to have things prepared to take action on that behavior. So that might be, for example, um, getting your shoes out the night before. It might be filling your water bottle. Um, it might be um, it might even be simply putting your shoes and socks on before you leave the office so that you um, are already dressed for exercise by the time you get home. Or better yet, go straight from the office when you finish. If you're working in an office and then you um, don't even go home, just go straight for a run from there. So look for how you can make it efficient, which means to have things prepared to take action on that. And then number four is the environment and it's hacking the environment. So Filling, like if it's in terms of health, like filling your fridge full of healthy foods. Um, in terms of exercise, maybe have a nice little workout space in your house that, you know, full of plants and, and a yoga mat and an area of your house that makes you feel good about yourself that you want to go to to exercise. And when you're in that spot, you're like, okay, this is, this is my spot for exercise. The same with your bedroom. Like your bedroom, as soon as you get there, it's like, okay, I'm primed for sleep. Um, hacking your environment could be putting your shoes in a certain spot at the front door, whatever it might be. So the four E's are effectiveness. So it sounds like it's common sense, but having routines which are actually conducive to what your big outcome goal are. And if your big outcome goal is to be able to run a half marathon, your behaviors have to be related to that. Um, pretty simple. Then you've got your ease. So having it back on, making it easy to slip into it, having it back on to an existing behavior or ideally habit. Efficiency, making um, having things prepared to take action on it. And then number four is environment and hacking your environment. So having nice new shoes that you feel good putting on so that you can exercise. Um, from there, you've then got habits, which within a habit, it's like a triangle. So you have a trigger, a routine, so behavior, which is a routine, and then a reward. So it ends up becoming a habit because you get that trigger. Um, so you get home from work, the trigger is, oh, when I get home from work, I go for a run. So that's the trigger, putting the keys up, whatever. Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff uh, that it could be. These are all micro behaviors too, by the way. So um, I would talk about micro behaviors and macro behaviors. So the macro behavior of exercise, exercise is a macro behavior. There are little micro behaviors which go into that. So just say, for example, if you are already home and you want to go for a run, which is a pretty simple behavior, there are still micro behaviors that go into that more macro behavior of running. So putting your running gear on, like singlet and shorts, whatever it is you're going to wear, um, putting your socks on, putting your shoes on, but it might even mean finding it, going and finding a clean pair of socks, going and finding your shoes. So again, having things prepared, having your stuff put away in your cupboard so it's easy to grab your socks. Every single one of these micro behaviors is an opportunity to say no. They're also an opportunity to say yes. So you need to keep saying yes every time when you do these because otherwise you could be negotiating with yourself, bargaining with yourself, arguing with yourself, going, I don't want to do it. It's too hot. It's too wet. It's too cold, whatever. Um, I don't feel it. I'm too tired. I, I deserve to have a have a break and sit down and, and eat chips on the couch and watch Netflix because I've had a hard day. They're all opportunities where you can say no. So having taking care of those four E's of routine is really valuable in making it easier to slip into because otherwise it makes it hard. So this is why I talk about just get out there and just start doing it because in the early parts, even if you're just walking and then you do a little bit of jogging, you've got out. If you if you say to someone, oh, I need you to um, do this roller routine, we've got five exercises, do each one, you know, 10, 10 times. And then I want you to do this um, hip opening stretch sequence. That's all great. But once the routine is established, um, yeah. And I think it, it comes down to also what else you're doing um, in your, 
routine throughout the week. So I, in an ideal scenario, someone would also be doing some other stuff. They would be doing some strength training, say, for example. When it comes to strength and conditioning, um, it's kind of like what comes first, the chicken or the egg? And most people can argue until they're black and blue in the face over which was first, the chicken or the egg, and you can see arguments for both. But when it comes to strength and conditioning, strength comes first. The strength underpins the conditioning. But there's another one in between there, and that's technique. And so you need to have strength first. You need to have that strength to be able to do whatever you're going to ask of your body to do. So in an ideal world, I wouldn't be getting someone to be going off onto a run. I'd be getting them to do some form of strength training first so that they their body is strong enough to hold them in a position and do what they're going to ask of their body over whatever distance they're going to run for. So if they're going for a 1K, a 2K, 5K, it doesn't matter. Their body needs to be strong enough to be able to hold them in that position to do that so that they don't get injured. Reducing the risk for injury is number one, and then athletic performance is number two. So I would have strength training first, then I would be doing a little bit of stuff on technique because then you need the strength to be able to do what you're going to ask of your body technically. Then with some technique training, you would then go into the conditioning, which is then essentially, you know, being able to do what you want to do, which is go for a 5K run, 10K run, whatever it might be. If you go out and you start exercising regularly, any type of exercise, whether it's running, gym, swimming, whatever, what's actually happening inside the body is, so you've got these nerve cells. So you've got one, it's all through the body, like millions of children's them. So you've got a nerve cell and you've got the neurotransmitters coming down. Serotonin is the big one. That's the feel-good chemical. You've also got endorphins and dopamine and so on. Dopamine is more of a binding chemical to whatever you're doing. So if it's released at the same time as serotonin, it wants more of that. If it's released at the same time as cortisol, for example, in stress or adrenaline, it wants more of that. So dopamine is not necessarily a feel-good chemical. It is being reinforced to get more of that whatever you're releasing at the same time so let's just talk mainly about serotonin because that's the big one 95 percent of it is stored in the gut and then it essentially then tells the brain what to do from there um so serotonin is released down one and this is very simplistic down one nerve cell across the synaptic cleft which is the gap between the two nerve cells and into the next one and so there's these receptor sites and so just say each one of my knuckles is a receptor site i've got four knuckles there so four serotonin chemicals come down, they go out the little receptor sites on the original nerve cell across the synaptic cleft, and they go in through each of the four receptor sites on the receiving nerve cell. And that happens through the however many millions of nerve cells are out through the body. When you start to do more exercise, you start to release more feel-good chemicals like serotonin. And so what happens is as the serotonin comes down through the nerve cell, it gets released into, into the synaptic cleft, but there's specific receptor sites that pick up serotonin and they're different to what picks up dopamine and picks up cortisol and picks up so on and so forth. So it ends up filling up in the synaptic cleft. And so the the receiving nerve cell needs to is always listening into what's happening inside the body and adapting to it. And so it's going, hang on a second, we're starting to get a whole bunch of serotonin. What's going on here? We need to do something about it. We need to create more receptor sites. And I liken this, I really like the analogy of like a nightclub. And so you've got these patrons that come in, you're used to every Saturday night at this particular nightclub, you're used to getting, um, you know, say 100 um, patrons and the, the bouncers at the door standing there and they're like the gatekeepers to the um, to the doors, to the receptor sites. And they go, yep, come through, come through. All of a sudden, one week, um, because you've done a whole bunch of exercise, there's all these new patrons. They've heard about this new band playing on this night and they're like, hey, let's go. So then they get 200 um, patrons and they're like, whoa, slow up. We can't all let you in. Just hold up a sec and we'll, if you're patient, we'll let you in. And eventually they do, but it takes time. The next week there's another band on and they, everyone hears about it. So then they get 400 patrons and they're, they're going, whoa. Eventually this nightclub has got such a good reputation that every week now consistently they're getting 500 patrons but they've only got, say, four doors to let people in and they can't, they want to make money, they want to get people in. So they're like, let's, we need to expand. We need to make the nightclub bigger. We need to make more doors to get people in. So the, um, the body always listening into what's happening to itself. It's then saying that the bouncers are saying to the owners, we need more doors. So then the owners are listening going, yep, okay, no worries. But it takes time to make those doors. It make, takes time to build those receptor sites. So that time frame. And I got into this by researching some stuff because I was really interested in an old boot camp I used to run as to why some people were successful with 
instigating change and losing weight and keeping it off ultimately and why some people were able to make that change and sustain it. So as I was doing this research, I came across this and found that the people that um, discovered this actually won a Nobel Prize in about 2014 for their their study. And so what actually is happening is that these receptor sites take about four weeks. And I was like, oh, it just made sense because it was the four-week mark where most people that I had come in knew would fall off the wagon. So when I was really um, intentional about my induction process then and talked them through this, all of a sudden everyone was able to make it a, a, a routine and then ultimately a habit so long as they followed through with that process of simply understanding it. And so what happens is as the body is creating these receptor sites, the body in that creation, the cell is actually quivering. It's like a quiver. We don't feel that because it's so minute in our body, but we sense it. And most people interpret that as this just doesn't feel right. There's something going on. I don't know what it is, but it doesn't feel right. So if you take away the whole like everything, you know, more physically around what's happening with exercise where you might be getting tired and other things come up and other priorities, whatever, take that out. This this shiver, this quivering of the nerve cells gives people this sensation that something doesn't feel right and then end up going back to the way they were, which is the body maintaining what's called homeostasis and that's keeping things as they are. The body loves to keep things as they are because it can predict it. So if you can be aware of that and you can just control what you can control and work on those four E's of routine in order to make something a habit, things don't just become a habit after 12 weeks, which a lot of people talk about. That is like learning how to walk. You don't take a baby and go, okay, you know how to walk now um, and that's it. You need to keep practicing it. But that first four weeks is essentially getting up onto your feet and then the next eight weeks up to the 12-week mark is then you then start learning how to walk on your own. And then from there, you can then progress to, you know, running in this little analogy that I'm using. But it is so important that you consider what's happening at a cellular level in the body when it comes to any type of behavior change, like starting to run. Yeah, no, it's really cool because a lot of people don't understand that. And then having that awareness, you know, you can get to that three-week mark and you can feel yourself maybe start to go, oh, I might quit next week. And and you can remind yourself of that research, give yourself that little bit more motivation to keep going and to push through. Yeah, so people might say, well, how does that look for me? What does that mean? So most simply, it's just all about understanding it. Just first of all, knowing it is is power. So then from there, knowing that that's what's happening, you can be aware that you are probably going to feel like things are changing after four weeks. But what you need to do is to go, okay, what milestones am I going to achieve in this first week? And so it might be, I'm going to go for two runs this week. Um, I always suggest people don't go over the top. Don't You might be able to fit in four or five runs a week, but I always suggest just do what you know you can easily achieve. Don't try and go over the top, like build up. Um, and then, so then once you then say, okay, my milestones for this week are to do two runs. Um, you might look at intensity or you might look at duration. I highly recommend duration. Um, then from there, you might then either consolidate in the second week or add to it a little bit. So you might either say, I'm going to do another two runs or I'm going to try three runs, um, or it might be two runs and a swim or two runs and a bike ride. I think keeping the behavior the same is really valuable, um, particularly for the first four weeks. But then, um, within that, if you break it down further on saying you're going to do two runs that week, then focus on those four E's. So um, efficiency, get your exercise gear out and be prepared. Um, E's, back it onto an already existing behavior. Um, Environment, make sure you've got comfortable shoes that you really like and clothes that you enjoy putting on that make you feel good. Um, And then um, effectiveness, ultimately, it's related to your outcome goal if it's starting to run is to then go running. Um, so then from there, you can then focus on each individual day. You build to doing two sessions in the week. You then say in the second week, you do another two sessions in the third week. You say you might do three runs in the fourth week, you do three runs again. And then you then, and then from there, you, uh, you honestly, you're ahead of the majority of people. Once you get to that four week mark with having done that, you've built momentum because building moment. So you've got motivation. And so this is, again, this is something that. When people start out, 
they get really motivated. So they go and buy new exercise gear or whatever and they so I'm going to do this and then they fizzle out and then they don't use the piece of equipment they've bought off like, you know, Daniel's Direct or whatever or they um, don't use, wear their exercise gear anymore. They Because what's happened is their motivation bucket has been filled up and then they go and tip it all out in one go. They just go hell for leather. They train five days a week. They go to do, you know, this, that and everything and then – they wonder why they then fall off the wagon at around week three or week four because they've just tipped all of the motivation out. So by doing this and um, focusing on those little milestones each week, you're essentially giving someone the t- their tap back. And so they're slowly tipping their bucket out for one instead of emptying it in one foul swoop. Um, they're slowly tipping that motivation bucket out. But at the same time, by doing that and having those little wins, you're then giving them the the tap and the hose to continue to fill the bucket up as they're going. And that's that momentum because then you build momentum and momentum then builds more motivation. Motivation then gives you that momentum and it becomes a self-sustaining cycle. Yeah, definitely. And then when it comes to form, you mentioned earlier the little bucket tip. I'd love for you to share that. I, I know about that analogy, but listeners don't. So I'd love for you to share the little bucket of water tip and then other tips that you might have for form and technique that someone can actually be aware of without having to go see a trainer or see a running coach? Yeah. So with the bucket, so ultimately when it comes to running, everything comes down to two things, time on the ground and power into the ground. They're the only two things that matter essentially when it comes to running at any distance um, at any speed. So time on the ground and power into the ground, both a, 100-meter sprinter and a 10K runner are going to spend practically at the elite level the same amount of time on the ground as each other. So it for a sprinter, it's about 0.11 of a second, so 0.11 of a second on the ground for an elite sprinter. And for an elite long-distance runner, it's about 0.12 to 0.13. So it's literally 0.01 difference. So long-distance runner, 0.012. The difference is 0.01 of a second. It's minuscule the difference between the two is the power into the ground a sprinter is hitting the ground harder a long distance runner is not hitting the ground as hard because they need to conserve their energy and the way that the sprinter does it is that they have higher knee drive they lift their knee up higher and then they swing it down and whack the ground as hard as they can to try and get as much time up in the air as they can so with that in mind, I always start with the pelvis. And so I get people and people can do this if they're um, sitting there, um, you can stand up. And if you're free, you can uh, go along and copy with me, put your hands on your hips and you can pretend that your pelvis is a bucket of, a bucket of water filled all the way up to the brim so that any movement in any direction is going to spill water out of the bucket. And from there, I always say, now I want you to try and tip water out the front of your bucket. And so you're tilting your pelvis forward. Then I want you to try and tip water out the back of your bucket. And then I do it like three times. So tip water out the front of your bucket, out the back of your bucket, out the front of your bucket, out the back of your bucket. And then I want you to settle in the middle, the neutral position where the water is steady and there's no water spilling out at all. And that should be the position that you essentially do everything in, doing lifting any weights, washing the dishes, sitting in the car driving, and certainly doing exercise like running. Um, and to begin with, I always suggest people that they overcompensate and they try and tip water at the back of the bucket, if anything, because many people are tipping water at the front of the bucket, which means that there's no strength happening through the core. And so that when the foot hits the ground, they're losing that power. The, the, um, it's all being dissipated out through the top end. And so they're not able to hit the ground as hard as they can, which is that second um, important one. Then they're also then when the pelvis is tilting forward, they're often spending too much time on the ground. And so their foot hits the ground and it stays on the ground way too long. And it's on the ground still out the back behind the body. So that's the pelvic bucket. There's a couple of other ones that I learned from a Pilates friend of mine um, where it was to pretend that you've got a belt on around your waist. So put a belt on, the belt has got 10 notches and you're going to pull the belt into the 10th notch. So essentially you're trying to pull your belly button in towards your spine. And then you play around with that. Then you release it out. And then you pull the belt onto the 10th notch, release it out to the 5th, release it out. And then you might play around further and go 10, 9, 7, 5, 3, 1, and so on. So that's the the, um, the belt. And that belt, when you're doing anything, should be at about level 3. Pilates instructors will typically say the third notch on the belt. 
for a nice, gentle, but maintained, like sustainable um, contraction. If you're doing heavy lifting, like squats, for example, with a bar on your back, you can't help but contract that. It's going to um, at level 10. It's going to pull into the 10th notch. And that's why I think that back squats with the bar on the back are actually the best core exercise because of all that bracing which is going on. Then the other one is your pelvic floor. So if anyone's not familiar with your pelvic floor, it's the part up in between your legs. Um, in, if you're in a, a male, um, from like me, in between your scrotum and your anus. And so you're trying to pull that little bit of um, that little muscle there um, up inside your body. So if you're trying to contract, so it's like you're trying to prevent yourself from going to the toilet. You're trying not to wear your pants. So if you pull up through that point, then that's your pelvic floor. So one way you can feel that is if you put your um, two fingers, your index finger and your root finger, just inside for most people, their um, waist belt or their waistband of their shorts or skirt, whatever, and you find, if you can find your hip bones, um, so you see where those little hip bones are. If you can't feel them, that's fine, but try and push in deep and wiggle around if you can. If you can push in a little bit further within that, so there should be a spot just inside the hip bones. Then when you pull that pelvic floor up, you should feel two little lumps pop up underneath your fingers. If you can't, you can push a little bit deeper, or it might just mean there's a little bit too much adipose tissue over the top and you can't access it, which is fine. Um, but you can work towards that to then being able to feel that. That's a muscle that's being contracted in there. So when you, with that um, reference of tensing those muscles, when you pull that pelvic floor up, it's the same thing as the belt. So I always talk about a 10-story lift. So you jump in, in the lift and you press the 10th floor and you go up one, two, three, four, up to 10 and add that pelvic floor lift, hold it for a sec, and then let it go initially. Then go again and go with a bit more control. Go up to 10, go down to 5, release. After 10, go down in odd numbers and so on. And you can play around with that while you're driving. You can play around with doing the dishes, sitting on the couch, whatever, anytime. But having that, um, that belt, the pelvic lift, and the bucket helps to put you in a really strong position so that you've got a good foundation so that then when you hit the ground, you can get your foot off the ground as quick as possible, and you can hit the ground with a little bit of power, even if you're running for long distance. So when it comes to long distance running, I talked about technique. It comes after the strength before the conditioning. Um, one of the most simple things you can do is to pull your toes up when you're running. So if you're landing on the front half of your foot, not the toes because people get too high and the heels are too high. Um, but if you can think about running on the front half of the foot and not going heel toe at any time, then that means that you're going to be able to spend less time on the ground. So if you think about pulling your feet up and pulling, flexing your toes up, then you're going to get off. First of all, those lower leg muscles are going to be braced when they hit the ground ready for contraction. And then secondly, you're then going to be able to spend less time on the ground, which is then going to improve your performance, but also in, increase your um, re reduce your risk for injury. Some people might initially start off struggling with that. They might get sore and tender in their shins or tight calves, Achilles and that. If that's the case, that is fine. It just means you've reached your limit. You go back and you have a rest and you take a couple of days off and then you go again. And again, you just only run for the distance that you can maintain and manage. Um, so, and that's where the strength is really important, particularly doing like calf raises and stuff like that. So the tib raise stuff, the calf raise stuff, all that is so important so that then when you do go for a run, you can um, sort of focus on the, the technique side of it before then also the conditioning where you're adding in your volume. Yeah, and is is there any exercises that can help with shin splints if someone has shin splints or is it about just minimising the running till you can comfortably run without pain? Yep, so if you've already got shin splints, then the first thing you do need to do is you do need to rest, take a couple of days off and just assess it. Um, icing it is really valuable. Doing some self-massage is really valuable. So massaging, um, like you might massage the tibialis anterior muscle, which is the front muscle right beside the shin bone, um, your calf, your Achilles, all that. You can massage that. One of the best things you can do is ice massage. So fill, like for example, a polystyrene cup is good, three quarters full because it will expand once it freezes and then peel the top off so that the top layer of the ice is exposed and then just ice them as hard as you can handle it on the inside of your shin um, and, and all over really, but particularly the inside of your shin because um, you're getting that icing effect, but you're also getting that massage effect. And then you just continue to peel the polystyrene off until it melts until you've only got a tiny little bit that you can't barely do anything with. Um, in the tropics here, it's a good time frame. Um, in the cold weather, it might last too long, but 
you know, 15 to 20 minutes of that is really good. Stretching it, secondly, and there's um, the stretches I talked about at the start where you're doing straight leg, heel over a, a step, knee bend. You can do all that stuff. You can also do some stuff if your knees are okay with it, just simply sitting on your shins with your feet um, flexed. Uh, so, so with your feet extended so that you're on the top of your feet um, and that will help to stretch out the front there. So you can do the ice massage, resting first of all, the ice massage, any other massage um, and the stretching. But ideally what you want to do is be proactive and make your car, your lower leg uh, muscles strong ahead of time. So you want them to be like tight little springs um, and so that you can bounce like a pogo stick. And so calf raises are great. I really like starting with body weight before progressing onto any weight. Um, and I, I really like doing full range. So heels all the way down, heels all the way up. And then um, I like doing, even changing a little bit where my feet are turned outwards and then inwards, um, a pigeon toed sort of thing. Um, so, but initially just to start with, that's getting a bit fancy, just straight legged. And then the other one is the tib raise stuff. So the front side, because most people focus on the back. So it's all the calf raise type stuff. Um, and by the way, seated calf raises, are, you might do straight-legged calf raises because they're great for your gastrocnemius, so that um, bigger calf muscle on the on the back. But the soleus, that deeper one, which is usually the one that gets tight when people do get shin splints, that one there is really hit when the knee's bent. So seated calf raises are great for that. The other one is the knees-over-toes calf raise. Um, so that's become very popular uh, now through the knees-over-toes guy. So having your knee, so leaning against like a pole or a wall, bending your knees as far as you can while you still keep your heels on the ground. And then in that position and maintaining that position with your knees bent, going up and down into a calf raise. So you're holding a squat and you're going up and down to the calf raise. And because your knees are bent, you're hitting the soleus. So that one, and then you've got the tib stuff where I would start off simply sitting on a chair or a bench, um, which is about sort of like knee to hip height. And lean over, rest your hand, rest your elbows on your um, on your knees, and then just do toe taps. But it's all about the up movement, not about the down movement. So you're flexing your toes up the whole time. You might start with 15 seconds of that on a one minute cycle. So take 45 seconds off, and then get progress to 30 seconds, 45 and 60. Once you can do that, then you then go to standing. So one foot away from a wall. Um, so you stand with your back against the wall, heels on the wall. Um, step out one foot distance out. And then from there, you're then pulling your um, feet up, flexing your toes into the top of your shoes, pulling them up towards your shins is the next one. And then the, the third progression is like the full-blown tib raise with like a dumbbell um, strapped onto the bottom of your foot or even better, a kettlebell hanging over your um, over your toe. And if you to get really good at that, you'd want to be doing 10% of your body weight. So if you're 70 kilos, set, um, seven, seven kilo dumbbell, a kettlebell on your foot that's that's a good level to aim for well thank you thanks for um sharing all of that knowledge and i'll include all of the links to get in touch with you in the show notes for the episode thank you very much for having me as well it was a pleasure awesome thanks jacob thanks for tuning in i appreciate you so much for being a part of this journey if this podcast resonates with you i would love your support so please share subscribe or leave a five-star review don't forget, you can find all the detail and links for this episode in the show notes. You can connect with me via Instagram at Isabel Cornish or via my website, isabelcornish.life. For more uplifting content, I highly recommend checking out my book, The Why, Healthy Habits for an Epic Life. Thanks for listening. And remember, stay magic.